Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up with the relentless wave of content between movies and TV. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. The recent 20th anniversary of The Sopranos provides a moment to consider the long arc of prestige TV. Few TV shows have been as widely admired in their first season and roundly rejected in their second season as True Detective. Now, the third season of the show is launched, starring Mahershala Ali in the story of a lawman hunted across three time periods by a single case. Again, under the guiding hand of controversial creator Nick Pizzolatto, the show is still moody and inscrutable, and this time seems to be splitting the difference in response from the previous two seasons. Well, Detective Hayes, could you tell us of your timeline of events? It was seven, 1980. It was just a case when I caught it. Yeah, I know it'd be my And so to join me to talk about the show, I'm joined by some of my colleagues from the television desk. Yvonne Vieria. Robert Lloyd. And calling in from New York, we have... Meredith Blake. Ah, fantastic. And Robert, now you reviewed this new third season for the paper. I was so struck by something you said. You called it an ambitious and imperfect work, beautiful and corny. Just as a way to sort of get into talking about the show, what did you mean by that? There's something about the genre show in a way that's dressed up very nicely. And so it does go to some places that are a little bit not trite, but we've seen before. But it's also very well done and, you know, very beautiful. The whole thing about True Detective, I think, from the beginning is that it's something that seems profound in a way. It's very literary. There's a lot of allusions. Every title in this season is an allusion to some work of writing. And in the first one, there was all the stuff with the Yellow King, and that's all from books and philosophy. But at the bottom, it's just a show in which there's people that are out trying to find the answer to a question. And often the answers are not very interesting. I thought the first season, although it's a great thing to watch almost all the way through, it's also the ending was just like, oh, well, it's a cult and they were killing a lot of people. There's nothing that's really brilliant about it except the trip that you're on. And the trip is great. And Meredith, I have to ask a question. Do you feel like anybody really needed a third season of True Detective because of the way the second season was received? Do you feel like the show's sort of creator and mastermind, Nick Pizzolatto, that this season seems very intentionally, it's like he's trying to regain his crown. He wants people to like the show again and presumably to like his work again. For you, Meredith, what's the impulse behind this third season? It definitely feels like he is trying to get people to like the show again. I think if there's a fault to be found in the third season, it's that it's sort of very obviously reviving slash rehashing some of what worked from the first season. I think as Robert gets into in his review, that might be conscious callback to the first season, or maybe he's just stuck in a rut. Either way, it seems pretty clear he's trying to bring back what worked. For Nick Pizzolatto, I'm sure there was some desire to regain the glory of that first season after the second one was so kind of brutally panned. This is a show that is done well for HBO, so it makes sense for them. Even if the second season was not as well-reviewed critically, there were a lot of people who watched it all the way through. And, you know, they're bringing it back with an Oscar winner. It's not hard to see why they're bringing it back. That being said, I don't know if we need it. I did go back and look at the second season reviews because it's just become gospel that everybody hated that show. It's not that badly reviewed. It's like there's a cross the board a range of reviews, but there's plenty of good reviews and it's made a critic rating is not horrible. And But does that just speak to the difficulty of reviewing 
television series and sort of the modern era. And that I think, Robert, the review that you wrote, you reviewed, you saw five of eight episodes. And so, you know, there are some big twists and turns and I, in a series like Two True Detective. And so I think what happened in the episodes that you probably don't get to see or didn't see when people were writing those reviews, even for the second season, that may be some of the stuff that drove people crazy as they were like making their way through the whole season. Yeah, but it wasn't a disaster. It was just like people were measuring it against something. It's a very weird second season, the season, but it has a lot of great things in it. A lot of what I love about the show is just the world you're in. There was some interesting world creation in that second season. Well, I mean, that's part of the problem or challenge of an anthology show is like you're sort of relying on the filmmaker, the writer to keep you invested versus the characters because it's going to change up. And so... Compared to season one, it was sort of a letdown in that way. I think what Robert is maybe speaking to is this tendency to kind of pile on, especially with something that, you know, comes out so strong and really becomes a cultural moment the way the first season of True Detective was. The expectations are so high for season two that when it's a little off, you know, the pendulum swings far in the other direction, that there's a massive pile on that maybe inflates or exaggerates the critical pushback, I guess. So now in season three, does it become less of this like mystical, momentous event? Like now it's just a television show. And it seems to have settled into like, this is what True Detective is, and this is how we reinvent it from season to season. You know, there, there are some very strong narrative similarities to season one that have, that have been revived with some differences. But you can see how it, it could go forward potentially from here. But now also it seems like one of the big differences with this new season is that in the previous two seasons, it seemed much more invested in the pairings of the actors and sort of like what the casting was in a lot of ways. And here, while there is a supporting cast built around him, it is much more Mahershala Ali's show. And it's really built around that character. Does that seem to you, Yvonne, to be like one of the bigger differences this season? Well, I guess what we're going to see the dynamic between Mahershala's character and his wife's character a lot more than the sort of buddy cop kind of thing. They're sort of co-equal. Um, yeah. Stephen Dorff does come into it more right. as it goes on. And the arc of their relationship, especially as it moves into the 2015 timeline when, well, I won't give anything away, but anyway, it becomes more pronounced. But it is much more following. It's not as much about two guys in a car talking to one another. Although there's um, some but the, of that. <laughs> right, there's some of that. Um, but he's very much the center of the show. And maybe just to step back for a moment for anyone who hasn't really been watching the show yet or who's still catching up, I mean, it is a complicated sort of structure that the show has where there's an initial segment that's set in 1980 that the motivating crime for all of the events of the show of two young children go missing. Then there's a middle section set in 1990 where the crime has been solved, but the case has been reopened. And so you're sort of learning a little bit of what's happening in the 1980 timeline from what you're learning about what's happening in the 1990 timeline. And then all this is being sort of filtered through a 2015 timeline in which a then aged Mahershala Ali character who seems to be suffering from dementia is attempting to remember the events of both 1990 and 1980 filtered through this sort of fog of his own mind while he's giving a television interview for a show called True Criminal. <laughs> well done, Mark. <laughs> And there, so you've watched it. Uh, and there is um, hints of new information that will come out. So it, it moves past just the, just him sitting in a room talking about the show. Well, I think it's not a spoiler to say, since this is going live after the first episode, what comes to light in the 1990 timeline when Mahershala's character is getting deposed is that we know after the first episode that the young boy has 
died. But we learn in the 1990 timeline that the girl that they never found, they think is still alive. They found Prince at like, I don't know, she robbed a store or it something. In a, in a store, yeah. They don't yeah. know that she was a customer or right, if it was right. a robbery. But that's, again, something that was in that kind of complicated three-part timeline is something that was, again, in in the first season that we saw in that, which was about a crime that took place in the mid-90s. And then there was this kind of stuff that happened in 2002. And then there was the present day where Matthew McConaughey was rambling about the past. Um, So, again, it's very similar to season one, more so than season two. Well, and that was sort of like what made it dynamic is like never really knowing where you were at and trying to figure that out versus season too was just like straight ahead timeline. I would like to say before we move on to other subjects, just a word for Stephen Dorff, who's very good in it and who I was just looking back at his recent credits and he's basically been in a lot of sort of horror and genre things over the last 15 years. And he's in Star now, but he does a really good job. And it's one of the nice things about shows like this. And I think it had that had some effect on the careers of Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson is that you kind of it brings these people back into focus, actors that you go, oh, that guy's good or, you know. Funny you say that, because I remember a few years ago when Steven Dorff was in the Sofia Coppola film somewhere, and that was supposed to be this, like, reappraisal. Let's, you know, oh, we're going to take Steven Dorff seriously. That was supposed to sort of re-energize his career. And then he went right back to making this sort of, like, genre crap that he'd been doing for a while. I feel like I don't want to get tricked by the fake (laughs) Dorffessance a second time around. Also, Dorffessance is just very awkward to say. Yeah, it doesn't sound sound like a good thing. Well, I think we'll just call it the Dorff. Revival. <laughs> but I must say that playing Marshall Ali's wife, the actress Carmen Ajogo, is someone that I always really like. I thought she was terrific in the second season of The Girlfriend Experience. I've seen the first two episodes that they sort of broadcast on the first weekend. And so I'm really hoping that they do a lot with her and her character and their relationship. She's so they're... hypnotizing. Like when she talks, I'm just like, I just mm-hmm. am so fascinated by her. She's very good. And well, that's also something I feel like I hesitate to speculate about his motives. One of the criticisms of the first season, which was very well received, but one of the, I think, fair criticisms was the female characters were, mm-hmm. were very one-dimensional and kind of pointless. And I think that this season seems to be making an effort to rightfully realize female characters, or at least one, which is good. Well, there were a number of female characters in the second season. I mean, most notably Rachel McAdams' character is this sort of troubled cop that was alongside Colin Farrell and um, Taylor Kitsch, like taking care of the sort of like the true detectives of season two. But it's funny, I I feel like in some ways, like the way that in this third season that Nick Pizzolatto's responded to the criticisms that the show is just sort of all about this kind of wounded machismo, it's not so much in what he's doing with the female characters, but it seems like he's making the show a more explicit exploration of kind of masculinity and masculine identity. And Robert, you can tell me, in the first episode, it's two or three times, it seemed very notable to me that they make explicit reference to the fact that the crime occurs on the day that Steve McQueen died. And it was as if it was like a certain kind of like motorcycle macho like died on that day too. You know, I know a lot of people kind of seized on that in reviews and things, but it didn't seem that important to me. I think it just happens to be the main characters are Vietnam veterans and some other characters as well. And they've both had different experiences of the war that have had an effect on them or or at least played to the kind of people they were. but I think that that's just writing. I don't really think that that was something that we should think too much about. It's just like, oh, here's a real world detail. Oh, it was the day that Steve McQueen died. He also talks about there being a big moon. So 
people haven't really gone into that so much, but there is a big moon. Well, around the first season, people got so excited about this sort of Reddit thread, like really trying to like unravel like what's going on, as you were saying, Robert, like the Yellow King and like all these oh, conspiracy it's theory ideas. Based. Like people love clinging to trying to figure out what the mystery is, like who's behind all of this. That was sort of the fun to some people being like the armchair detectives. I was just always fascinated by the performances, but I don't know. I agree. I think that basically that what's great about the first season are those two guys just talking to one another. I mean, it's not all that's great about it. One thing that it did ahead of a lot of other shows was really establish a kind of documentary is not quite the right word, but a real sense of place that you could really feel and experience. And that was pretty brilliantly worked through a lot of the smaller characters. Unlike a lot of shows, everywhere that people inhabit, whether they work or live in the show, is very right. Poor people live in houses that poor people live in, middle-class people live in middle-class houses. So often television has this weird sort of aspirational production design where everything is like too nice or too beautiful. And I felt like the first season especially was very reminiscent of a lot of art photography, of like street photography, like William Eggleston, people like that who were shot that area. And it really brings this world to life in a way that's extremely vibrant. And again, the plot itself is just a plot and doesn't really matter. But I think that and just those guys talking is like exciting. Well, how much of that had to do with having, in? because the first season had the same director, Kerry Fukunaga, the whole way through. But then obviously there was some, I guess, rumored friction and he left the series before season two. And then that was the intent for season three was to have the same director again, Jeremy. Jeremy Saulnier, who's a, a indie filmmaker. He had made uh, most notably a movie called Green Room yeah. that came out a few years ago. That was And apparently popular. like he's known for like like brutal violence. Very brutal, yeah. very intense films. But I guess there was also some friction there and he left after two episodes. But like, yeah, I think with season one, Carrie like really set the atmosphere of this show. And like, obviously Matthew and Woody are like seasoned actors, but what Carrie was able to pull from them was like really amazing. And just some of the shots were just breathtaking. Like there was that tracking shot, like with like the shootout. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was incredible. just amazing. Like six yeah. minutes where I'm just like, Meredith, do you think that's one of the things that maybe one of the distinctions from that first season to the second and third season, it brings up this interesting question of like authorship on a contemporary television series, like who's in charge? Well, Nick Pizzolatto is the showrunner and the creator and in some ways is meant to be the person in charge. There's still these directors that are getting involved. It's interesting that in this third season, David Milch, the acclaimed writer of, you know, creator of Deadwood, co-wrote one episode and I think was sort of involved as sort of a supervising producer on some other ones. And do you think one of the things that's interesting about true detective Meredith is the fact that there's this kind of like tension about who's in charge? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And one of the interesting things looking back at the coverage of the first season is is looking at who credited the success of the series to whom, you know, whether it was Carrie Fukunaga or Nick Pizzolatto. And you get into weird questions of, you know, who's the author of a TV show? Is it the writer or is it the director? In this case, it's an even thornier question because you have an entire series written by one person and directed by another, which is not the standard in this industry. Since then, it's become more popular. You see a lot of feature filmmakers moving into TV and directing entire series of TV. You know, Ben Stiller just did it. Spike Lee has done it. Steven Soderbergh has done it several times. It's become a lot more viable, but it is leading to interesting conversations about who, who the real creative force is. And I think the, the kind of consensus on that first season seems to be that Nick's writing and the kind of sort of crazy existential dialogue coupled with Carrie Fukunaga's very strong visual sense made for a, a kind of an unmatched product. 
and that wasn't able to be duplicated perhaps in season two. And now season three, you have, again, a number of directors and Nick wrote all of the episodes save for one or two, I think, two, one. David Milch co-wrote one of them. So, uh, you know, we'll see. But I think having that strong visual direction really made a difference in season one. Yeah, it was so interesting that just this past year, there was a feature film called Galveston that was an adaptation of the novel by Nick Pizzolatto. And it was directed by the French actress and director Melanie Laurent. And it starred Ben Foster and Elle Fanning. And it was very curious where the movie first premiered at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Melanie Laurent had screenplay credit. And then when the movie actually came out later in the fall, it was a different name, had screen credit. And it was actually like a pseudonym that Pizzolatto had chosen to take. Apparently, it had gotten into a like an arbitration with with the WGA. And so it's funny that, and I guess he was somewhat displeased with the adaptation that Laurent had done, like how she had changed the movie. So he didn't want to put his name on it, but she didn't win the arbitration. So it was really became common. And it, but the funny part is her main changes to it were beefing up the female character oh of the God. movie <laughs> to make the Elle Fanning wow. character stronger so that as Melanie would say, cause I interviewed her for the film, she said she wanted to make it about the two of them and not just about the guy. And that seems so instructive to like the mind of Nick Pizzolatto and like the sort of the way in which this sort of like resting of creative control seems to be like a huge part of what his work is about. Well, there always seems to be kind of behind the scenes drama with each season. There's been some kind of tussle, whether that's inflated or, or what we don't really know, but it certainly seems to be an ongoing concern with this franchise. But now it's funny, there, there actually is a line that Mahershala's character has in one of the early episodes where he says, I never stopped coming up with theories about that case. And it seemed like Pizzolatto sort of winking at the audience for the fact that people love to kind of come up with all these theories. And I've already read some writing online about people like looking for real life parallels. The fact the story is set in Arkansas, there are these three boys who are sort of considered suspects, obviously points towards the notorious West Memphis Three case. And then it also wants to bring up the sort of 80s, like satanic panic daycare stories. But then in an interview, Pizzolatto said, I really wasn't interested in any of that. Like he sort of denies that that was in any way an inspiration for the story. The, the most that could be was just a little passing or a bit of misdirection because it does not go anywhere near that. My note on it is I'm writing down, oh, West Memphis 3, you know, I wrote that down, but it was like, no. I just wrote down Stranger Things. <laughs> Kids on <Yeah>. bikes. <laughs> And before we move on to another topic, are we all in? Like, from what we've seen so far of this third season of True Detective, are we going to stick with it? I'm in just because, like, Mahershala Ali just, I will watch anything he is in. Like, I was nervous, too, about the aging of him. Is this going to draw me out? Is it going to be too costumey? But the makeup is really good. Like, even when he's, like, emoting, like, the makeup, like, it feels real. As well, there's been a lot of writing recently about the 20th anniversary of the beginning of The Sopranos. It was 20 years ago, believe it or not, The Sopranos launched, and which really, in many ways, ushered in our new era of prestige TV. And Meredith... And you examining masculinity. And examining masculinity. Sadly. And sort of like the, the anti-hero as the sort of guiding light of television drama. And Meredith, you just interviewed that show's creator and showrunner, David Chase. And I myself interviewed David Chase when he had his feature film, Not Fade Away. And I know that he is no easy interview and is not one who wants to give up much information. I don't know that he's one who's really prone to looking back. And so what is his mood as everyone wants to talk to him about the 20th anniversary of The Sopranos? Meredith, please tell tell them how you interviewed him. 
<laughs> he was okay. Well, he was sick, so he literally walked in the room and said, "Do you mind if I lie down?" So he was lying on the couch in the office of the movie. He, they're doing a prequel movie, The Sopranos, and this is the production office. And he was lying down, kind of clutching his forehead, and it felt very like you know his analyst or something. Although I don't know if I got that deep with him, but it did. It had a funny kind of therapeutic deal to it. There's certain things he's happy to talk about, or at least willing to talk about, and he definitely doesn't want you to ask him, "Is Tony dead?" But everybody does anyway. Everybody does, and they will never stop doing it. You know, I think he was having a good time talking about the anniversary of the show and its legacy. But I think the ending, much to his chagrin, I guess, is all anyone ever wants to talk about at this point, which I understand. If they want to bring that show back, it's just like something good to have in your pocket. No, he wasn't dead. The lights went out, but he's still okay. <laughs> well, Robert, do you want to talk a little bit about the legacy of the show? And do you see it as a show that changed television? It did change television. Its importance, I think, in some ways is it's not the great first artistic show of television. But the most important thing is that it was about family relations. And although there was a lot of typical stuff of mafia stories, it had at the heart this story of a guy who was a dad, among other things, and a husband and, and a son. I think that's what gave it a kind of edge. You know, Prestige originally had more to do with the commercial foundation of something like HBO, where you need to sell to subscribers. And so Prestige was basically what they had to sell. They had to make things that were exciting enough that people would, and different enough that people would give them money. So it's not like TV became more excellent with The Sopranos, but it became that model of creating original content that people needed to shell out for really is the story of 21st century television. It's the story of Netflix and Amazon and everything else. And as far as this legacy of, of toxic masculinity, I think that was actually a kind of a negative thing for the first 10, 15 years of this century because that just became the model for what a serious show was and it, it became very tiring. I was very glad to see that trend start to disappear. Meredith, did you get some sense of what Chase sees as the legacy of the show? He doesn't really watch much TV and he will tell you that. So I don't think he's one to assess his own legacy in that way. You know, I get the sense that he's very proud of the show and creating this character. But I asked him whether he'd watched other shows and thought about other endings, because every showrunner I've talked to who's had to wrap up a big cable drama in the year since it refers to this, you know, the ending of The Sopranos is kind of the ultimate. You can get him to talk about particular episodes and, and certain aspects of the show, but not kind of sweeping generalities about its legacy. I interviewed him for another publication years ago, um, around the second or third season. And um, his roots are in uh, film. He wanted to be a filmmaker, and he was very influenced by foreign film. And the years in which he became interested in movies, times in which things were very ambiguous, and a lot of 70s films don't really end. You know, they'll stop on a freeze frame where some weird, inconclusive moment has happened. And to me, that Sopranos ending is like a 1970s movie ending. <laughs> and Yvonne, do you find that the show remains watchable today? Like, is there a strong rewatchability to The Sopranos? I haven't rewatched it, so I couldn't answer that. Meredith and I were talking about this before doing the podcast, where I was like, I definitely remember it. I was like eighth grade going into high school, and it was something my parents were kind of like 
I don't know if this is suitable for you, but we're going to watch it. And we didn't have HBO, but they would like go to my aunts and uncles to watch it. We finally got HBO and I saw more of it, but I haven't done the rewatch and I kind of wanted to before the anniversary, but I didn't get around to it because it's peak TV and I have to watch current stuff. But yeah, maybe, I don't know. But also it's so daunting because it is seven seasons. So, I mean, you, you dare say you sort of want just like the greatest hits version where you yeah. want maybe like the top episodes right. to watch. Have you rewatched it? I've like spot watched some yeah. episodes and I mean, it, it's certainly enjoyable. Uh-huh. When I've rewatched it now, I'm struck by there is this just portentousness to it. It's a heavy mm-hmm. show, I find, for the most part. And I don't know if that's because of the legacy of the show, if that in some ways is because of a certain sadness in watching James Gandolfini and that the actor who passed away. And so there, like that makes it sadder to me somehow. Like, I don't, I don't know why, but the show, now it always just feels heavy to me now. I'll say a couple of things. One is that I think it went on too many seasons. I think there's a lot of confused dead weight there at the end, and then it kind of gets itself back. The other thing, though, is that, I mean, it's not a show that I'm ever driven to look at again. I mean, I have very vivid memories of it, and I certainly wouldn't argue about its excellence in terms of writing and acting and casting and and conception. But at some point, it's just like, this guy is not going to change. And Milch talks about the show in which Adrian had whacked as something where it was meant to remind people that Tony's a bad guy because he'd become kind of like Ralph Cramden or something. But also to me, that's like, yeah, that's why this show isn't worth watching anymore. These people are just going to be bad and there is no ending for them except a blackout at the end. Meredith, certainly one part, a huge part of the show's legacy, I think, is just what a great platform it was for the actor James Gandolfini. And I was so struck by the fact that you actually attended his memorial service, like you you were there to cover it for the paper? Yeah, was it 2013? He died very suddenly in kind of cinematic fashion, I guess. He was in Italy on vacation and died. Yes, I went to his funeral and David Chase gave a very moving eulogy about him and his performance as, as Tony and... I think, as you mentioned, it does kind of overshadow any kind of rewatching it, knowing that he died, and he died very young. You know, he's someone who, I think he was 51 when he died, and he was only in his mid-30s when he started playing Tony, which is kind of mind-boggling. So, yeah, that certainly colors any kind of reading of it or rewatching of it now, knowing that he's no longer with us. Chase's eulogy was actually just published in that recent book, The Sopranos Sessions, that just came out on the show. It is formed as a letter to James that David wrote, and it really is just an astonishing piece of writing and very emotional thing to read. And he ends with the Joan Osborne song, What If God Was One Of Us, is what I remember of it. That he ends with this image of, of Tony as kind of this stranger on the bus. I don't know. And I'm kind of, I'm going to misquote it now. I would encourage people to read it because it is pretty moving. I remember it was very moving at the time. Before we, st- we stop, I, sh- I want to ask the three of you, is there some continuum, I guess, between The Sopranos and something like True Detective? Like what, I mean, is there some arc to the idea of prestige TV and sort of now peak TV? I, I think, Robert, in your review, I try to remember what you had a, a are you the, the new golden <laughs> platinum age of, of television. Like, is, is there some connection? Like, can you see those shows as existing on a continuum? Well, I think that certainly... The Sopranos was one of the first shows of this era that was very identified with the guy that was writing it in a way that was, people knew, oh, David Chase, The Sopranos, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily know that earlier shows, even in the 50s and 60s, might have had a real authorial hand, but you weren't really aware of them. Um, So in the sense that it was a a writer-created show, that definitely brings you right to True Detective and a lot of what's going on. Meredith, do you see a connection between the two? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many connections. I think one obvious one is that, you know, The Sopranos is a show that kind of reinvented a well-established genre. And True Detective is, is very self-consciously something that's attempting to kind of reinvent sort of the murder mystery buddy cop drama and has done so, I think, to some extent. I did rewatch the show, some of the show, before I talked to David Chase. I rewatched some pivotal episodes and that I hadn't watched in many years. And it was interesting kind of seeing the obvious impact of the show on other shows, particularly shows like Mad Men, you know, which shared a writer and Matt Weiner, who's a, who's a soprano staff writer. You can see its influence very clearly if you go and, and rewatch it, certain elements. So I would say there, there's a definitely a through line from The Sopranos to True Detective with a lot of shows along the way, including Mad Men and Boardwalk Empire and countless others. And so with that, we'll wrap things up. So Meredith, why don't you tell people where they can find your work online? Um, at Meredith, that's M-E-R-E-D-I-T-H, Blake, B-L-A-K-E. And Robert? Twitter is at L-A Times TV Lloyd. And Yvonne? On Twitter, at Villarilli. And of course, I'm at Indie Focus. And so for L.A. Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening.